if you want to hike the Gorge of Samaria on the Greek island of Crete, you might like to know you'll have someone there who'll look out for you. There is this old shepherd there who knows, of course, every guide, and usually he has some cheese, and if you know him well, he can bring some other stuff out as well. Coming up, a pair of Greek travel experts tell us how traditions remain important on Crete, where you can still look at frescoes that are 4,000 years old. Cruising in Alaska, the attractions, the scenery, and the wildlife. You've got the water, you've got the green islands, you've got the snow-capped peaks, and then you've got the wildlife. You've got whales, you've got brown bears, you've got black bears, you've got wolves. Travel writer Mark Adams reports on how he used the state ferry system to retrace the historic route of the 1899 Harriman expedition. And a Dutch ecologist explains how life is evolving around us a lot faster than you might expect. We don't see evolution as something that you can observe in your backyard, but you can, and it goes fast and it happens everywhere. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. You could call it the first luxury cruise to Alaska, and it had an amazing guest list. Railroad magnate Edward Harriman invited John Muir, George Bird Grinnell, William Dahl, and other leading scientists, artists, and thinkers of his day to sail with him into the often uncharted waters of Alaska in 1899. He wanted it to be a sort of floating university to explore the wilderness that America had purchased just a few decades earlier. Its passengers would provide the spark that got America serious about conservation. Travel writer Mark Adams retraced their journey on the much humbler state ferry system to see what Alaska's natural history and its people had to teach him today. He tells us what he found in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And Dutch scientist Menno Skilthausen explains how urban ecologists in cities around the world have been noticing evolutionary forces at work in local animals and plants right before our eyes. He'll tell us where you can witness this, too, a little later in the hour. Let's start today's show with a look at what you can find when you visit the largest of the Greek islands, Crete. It's where the earliest advanced civilizations in Europe were found more than 4,000 years ago. We're joined by Greek travel experts David Willett and Anastasia Gaitanou. Our conversation was recorded prior to the COVID pandemic closures. Pleasure to be here. David, how are Cretans, the people who live on Crete, different from Greeks in their outlook? I don't think there's a prouder person to be found in Greece than a Cretan. Cretans are extremely proud of their long history, their island, and their wonderful food. The people from Crete really see themselves as being a little bit different to the people from the Greek mainland. Anastasia, when you think of the pride of the Crete people and, and the traditions, how does that survive in their dress and the way they'll look when we travel there? You can find that still worn by older people in the largest cities, but you find it definitely in, out in the country and in smaller villages, and the further up you go on the mountains, the more you find that. And you have this very particular scarf that they wear on their head. It's black, of course, mm-hmm. and usually it, there is also a big mustache underneath, definitely, because that's um, a masculine thing. And then they have a black shirt, and they have brown trousers that are very distinct and to Crete, and usually black boots. And I was struck when I went to Crete that these kind of traditions survive more there than elsewhere in Europe. I mean, everything is becoming modern and, and the same as you travel around more and more. But in Crete, you do find those traditions alive. Uh, David? 
Well, I, I was in, in Crete just last June, and having not been there for a while, I was wondering whether I'd see some of these things like the old bridges and the long boots and the, the kerchiefs. But to my great surprise, they have not disappeared. In fact, they've now become trendy and symbols for the young. Symbols for the young. Yes. What, now, why yeah. would that be? Is that sort of an expression of independence? Well, or? I think it's because they see themselves different and they want to let people know that they're proud of their traditions. There's a lot and of guns on Crete, aren't there? They used to be synonymous with uh, Crete guns, but you see less so these days, although when you go walking, you see plenty of cartridges from the hunting season. Is that right? What would they be hunting? Prime, 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 any, anything that moves. Birds, rabbits, hares. If you're in Athens, how easy is it to get down to Crete? It couldn't be more simple because there's uh, boats that do the trip overnight and there's lots of flights with uh, Aegean Air. So let's say you got five days for Crete. What would you do, David, uh, if you're helping me plan my itinerary? If I was going to have five days, I would stick to the north and I would stick to Iraklio, which is the capital and mm-hmm. access point for the famous Minoan Palace of Knossos. Mm-hmm. And then I would go across to Khania, which is the second city on Crete. And it's just a beautiful uh, old Venetian city. From Hania, can't you go up to the top of the mountain and hike down the Gorge of Samoria? Have you ever hiked that? Yes, I have. What's it like? Well, you have a very long descent in the beginning. Uh, 10 kilometers, about 4 kilometers to go down. You just go down a winding path. So switchbacking, back and down, down, down. And then you move through the gorge. But there are really beautiful spots at that gorge, and you meet people. There are people there. There is one spot called the Gate. And there is this old shepherd there who knows, of course, every guide and every person who goes often through that gorge. And usually he has some cheese. And if you know him well, he can bring some other stuff out as well. And you see also a lot of the very unique flora and fauna of Crete. And there is, uh, if you're lucky, usually you are, you see wild ibex that they have there. And it's only on Crete. And it has a very funny name, actually. It's called Krikri. 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 And ibex. Yeah. David, if I remember correctly, the tourists generally catch a minibus or something up for the, almost like at sunrise, and then they walk switchbacking down. Then they have a long hike along the river with little places to swim along the way. They reach a very, very narrow part in the gorge where you can almost stretch your arms out and touch either of the the sheer cliffs. And then at the bottom, you have a beautiful remote beach and a boat waiting to take you to the next town from where you catch the shuttle bus back to your home base. Is that still basically the routine? That is still basically the routine, although they have come up with an alternative for the lazy person who does not want to do the whole walk. You can take a boat to, I think it's Akia Rumeli, mm-hmm. the base of the gorge, and you can do what they say, the gorge short way, when you simply walk up to the iron gates and walk back again and don't do all the other very strenuous stuff. Okay, so there is for the quick tourist and for the person who wants to spend a little more exercise, tour guides Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki and Australian David Willett are experts on ancient Greece and the Mediterranean world. They're telling us about the island of Crete right now on Travel with Rick Steves. David, you mentioned uh, the Palace of Knossos. Anastasia, tell us about the, the civilization that left us with this amazing palace. Well, there was a prehistoric civilization on Crete and some of the Cycladic islands, but most of the things we have preserved are on Crete. And they're called the Minoans or Minoans. The name derives from the mythological first king of them, who was Minos or Minos. And uh, they have left some amazing remains of palaces in Crete. We have three big palaces, Malia, Knossos, Festus, oh, four, and Zacros. And there are also some ruins of villas. The most known one, the most famous one, 
because it was excavated by the English archaeologist of the time, Arthur Evans, and it was reconstructed to mm. an extent, is the Palace of Knossos, which is outside of Heraklion, about half an hour's drive. So you go to Heraklion, and you can then, probably the number one site that visitors are looking for is this Palace of Knossos. It is sort of rebuilt in a little bit uh, over-ambitious style by this uh, archaeologist. Well, because he, he couldn't really know right. how so it he was. Had a, he had a romantic so there is a image. big dispute about that. But when we think of the Minoans, uh, my image is, okay, you have the 3000 BC civilization in Egypt, and then the next real civilization to emerge was on Crete, the Minoans, and that was a thousand years before the golden age of Greece that we always think yes. of with Socrates and Plato. Most probably those Minoans were not Greeks most hmm. probably. They did have uh, an alphabet. The structure of it is very close to what the Egyptians had, but it's a completely different thing. And it has not been deciphered yet, so we don't really know what language they spoke. And we do know that they had lots of relationships with uh, some of these Cycladic islands, like Sandorini, for example, which is very close to Crete, to the north of Crete. And we do have remains of frescoes, mm -hmm. lots of them. Most of them dated between the 14th and the 18th century BC. So that's like nearly 4,000 years old. Yes, it is. And so we have a, an idea of how they looked like. But what happened to this civilization? I mean, how did they vanish? How did they vanish? That is a very good question. Till some years ago, it was believed that the reason was the eruption of the volcano of Sandorini because it was dated in the 15th century. But now through new evidence and information that we have, uh, radiocarbon dating, um, the, the glaciers in, in Greenland, etc., it is dated in the 17th century. So archaeologists believe that it destroyed most probably the first palaces because mm. we have three different palaces then on top of the other. And most probably... Either they were fighting against each other or there was a new big danger because we have lots of uh, references of uh, people of the sea, etc., but nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. But 1400 BC, the Minoans are gone and the Mycenaeans would be the next civilization that takes the four as we move up towards Athens and the Golden Age of Greece. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Anastasia Gaetanou and David Willett about the pretty impressive island of Crete. And David, when we think about tourism in Crete, I would imagine there's a lot of people that are going there not for ancient palaces or, or a hike down the Gorge of Samaria, but just for some fun in the sun. What's the tourism scene these days in Crete? What are the trends? I think the trend these days is, is dominated by, by beach tourism. And I think the busiest months for beach tourism, obviously, that the, the warmest months, which are June, July, August, and September. And I have to say, I, I'm not a beach person. and I, I do not go to Crete for the beaches, and therefore I choose not to go during those months for me, the real Crete is, is the countryside, out walking. It is a spectacular countryside. Who would be filling those, those beach resorts? Where, what countries are they coming from these days? Uh, a, a lot of them are, are British, mm -hmm. and they go there and they, they find reassuring signs that say things like full English breakfast, <laughs> and, and people who don't, won't threaten them with any words that might be in Greek. But the new arrivals are the Russians. The Russians are there in large numbers because they come from a country that's colder than England. So, uh, so Russians go to Crete, and would these be individual travelers or mostly package groups? No, they're, they're nearly all package groups. Very few mm -hmm. individuals to see them as package groups. Two sort of uh, parallel zones, I guess. People are going for cultural travel, and people are looking for a change in weather, but not necessarily a, a change in culture. Yes. And just have a romp on the beach. Let's finish our discussion of Crete with just a little bit about the Cretan cuisine. Anastasia, when you think of food in Crete, what do you think? Well, I definitely think first of a beverage, Raki, 
Because yeah, you're greeted with it everywhere, you're welcomed with it everywhere, and it's a, it's a big offense. It's an insult not to drink it. And then you start eating. And the first thing that comes to mind are land snails. They're called kohli, and they're boiled. Usually I've had them in with many different ways, like boiled in water with raki, of course, or um, with rosemary and in lemon olive oil, or uh, with uh, onions and tomato. I mean, they taste Great. So land, snails, and rocky when I'm in Crete. David Willett, let's say you're stepping into a bar in Crete and you sit down next to the bar and there's a a tall, proud Cretan with a big mustache and a pistol tucked in his belt and he's going to buy you a drink. What drink is it going to be, and what would you talk about? It's going to be it's going to be rocky. It's got to be rocky. There's no there's no other choice. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned uh, Anastasia. That's an obligation because when I was working there for Learning Planet, it was an occupational hazard. No matter what time of day, you'd arrive at 9 o'clock in the morning and the first thing you'd be given was a glass of raki. This is hard stuff. My, my day would be over by 10.30 sometimes because I, could, I couldn't face another, another glass of raki. And, <laughs> is, and that's before lunchtime. What does it taste like? It's, it's, it's strong. It's a relatively neutral drink. It's more it's, just a slap a lot, in the a face, lot, isn't a lot it? A lot of people describe it really as, as kind of moonshine. It's strong. And then uh, there's a, sort of this aggressive hospitality where you're sitting next to this guy and buy another one, drink it. It's like (laughs) my my moustache curl, yes. (laughs) (laughs) David Willett, Anastasia Gaitanu, thanks so much for a little peek at Crete. Thank Thank you. you very much, Rick. Find out how we're all accelerating natural selection in the world around us in just a bit. But first, Mark Adams tells us about his 3,000 mile journey along the wild coasts of Alaska. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. One of America's hottest travel destinations has also been one of its coldest. Until the pandemic closures, Alaska cruises had become one of the country's most popular summer vacations. More than a million passengers sailed into the southeast panhandle in recent years. But for travel writer Mark Adams, his marine itinerary was not exactly a luxury cruise experience. Mark's goal was to retrace the pioneering route the Harriman Expedition took in the summer of 1899. It was nicknamed the Floating University and is credited with sparking the modern conservation movement. Railroad tycoon Edward Harriman invited leading scientists, artists, and naturalists of his day to join him on his chartered steamship. They sailed 3,000 miles from Seattle through southeast Alaska up to Prince William Sound, the Aleutian Islands, and all the way to the Bering Sea in Siberia. For his modern update, Mark Adams armed himself with the schedules of the Alaska ferry system, cliff bars, Dramamine, and an industrial-strength mosquito net. His goal was to see the places and meet the people, plus a few bears who make their home in coastal Alaska. Mark's book, Tip of the Iceberg, is a vivid account of what both voyages, his and Harriman's, encountered. Our interview was recorded in 2018. Thanks for having me, Rick. So, Alaska cruising... First of all, it's really popular these days. Why is everybody going up to Alaska? Well, the thing about Alaska is the scenery. You know, mm-hmm. you've got these incredible mountains that rise from the shoreline from sea level to 15,000 feet in some places. You've got the water. You've got the green islands. You've got the snow-capped peaks. And then you've got the wildlife. You've got whales. Mm-hmm. You've got brown bears. You've got black bears. You've got wolves. It's an incredible, 
usually week-long itinerary where you, your camera comes out at dawn and yeah. doesn't go away until <laughs> dusk. Now, you have an option. You can take the big ships out of Seattle or Vancouver, or you can fly into Alaska and take a smaller ship. And you've got the option of going sort of the backpacker route on the state ferries. Uh, can you Absolutely. just in a nutshell compare the, the three? Because to me, those are the three ways to do it, I think. I mean, everybody knows about the classic inside passage cruise that you mentioned. You know, you mm-hmm. leave out of Vancouver or Seattle. You're on a big ship. You've got a lot of people. You've got a, a very strict itinerary. You might stop in a few of the bigger towns like Ketchikan, Skagway, Juneau. Another option is a lot of the European companies and, you know, companies like National Geographic will send out a smaller boat with 30 or 40 or 50 people on board. They'll have a special naturalist on board who will describe everything you see. And if you want to stop somewhere for a longer period of time or maybe go kayaking or do something special, there's more flexibility in Mm -hmm. in the itinerary. The third choice, which is the one I, I followed when I got to Alaska, is there's a thing called the Alaska Marine Ferry System which is essentially Alaska's Greyhound because Alaska has so few roads because of its crazy size and crazy topography, you can get all along the Alaska coast from the state border near Ketchikan all the way out to the Aleutian Islands and Dutch Harbor going from town to town on these marine ferries. And that's how people move large things like cars and trucks as well as themselves from, you know, say if you're bringing a car from Seattle out to Anchorage or Homer or a place like that, you can take it on the marine ferry. Now, one thing that's kind of fundamental to experiencing Alaska, I would think, is probably 90% of the tourists go there, and they go to towns that have sort of not sold out to the cruise ships, but allowed cruise ships to really shape their local economies. I would think a little town like Sitka that has all the cruise ships, these 3,000 people on the ship stopping by every day. What's the negative impact of these huge cruise ships on small towns in Alaska? And do some towns actually choose not to take the money and to keep their soul? An interesting case in point are the two towns at the top of the Lynn Canal, which is the fjord that reaches up to the end of the Inside Passage, almost where Alaska starts to bend from Canada out towards Siberia. Mm -hmm. Those two towns, one, Skagway, is a uh, national park. It's an old gold mining town from 1899. Everything is really well preserved. And on a nice summer day, you might get five cruise ships pulling up at the dock Mm -hmm. and dumping 10,000 people into this small (laughs) old west main street. When the day ends, they go back on the ship and they and they pull away. And, and you know, the population has gone from 1,000 to 11,000 and is back to 1,000 in time for dinner. Mm. Just a few miles away is a town called Haines, which is an absolutely gorgeous town. They decided, I think about 15 years ago, that they didn't think they were getting the trade-off from cruise ship traffic that they wanted. And they, they said they were going to put a tax in and the cruise ship's instantly overnight said, okay, we're not going to Haynes anymore. And you know what? Haynes is absolutely delightful. Um, no no regrets huge... from Haynes' point of view to be, no, they, no, become invisible no re- from a big cruise industry point exactly, of view. Exactly, exactly. But they don't have that mm-hmm. massive tourism yeah. T-shirt shop. So it's, uh, a, it's a kind of a tough choice, or, or not a tough choice, but it's an important choice for towns all over the world that happen to be blessed with a beautiful maritime setting. They have to kind of think, do I want the money from the cruising, given what that might do to the character of my town? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Mark Adams, and Mark followed the 3,000-mile route of the famous Harriman Expedition of 1899 to see what's changed in Alaska and to learn the challenges and rewards today's residents of coastal Alaska face. His book is called The Tip of the Iceberg, and there's more on his website at markadamsbooks.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Vanessa's calling from Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Vanessa, thanks for your call. 
thank you. We took the Alaska Marine Ferry last August out of Bellingham, Washington. Took it as far as Juneau. It's just the best-kept secret for transportation in Alaska. It was absolutely fantastic. We are not luxury cruise-type people, but we wanted to see the beauty and scenery of Alaska. So I I understand Uh, it takes about three days to get to Alaska then on the ferry from uh, Bellingham? Yes, yes. So you do have to plan for that, and it's not the fastest mode of transportation, (laughs) but um, it, it is some of the most fantastic scenery you'll you'll encounter the sunsets the sunrises Mm. the wildlife just uh really like old alaska was or is and uh, on top of that you get to mingle with the locals as this is a major means of transportation that they use so i would imagine for some of the remote towns there up north of vancouver island and so on this is their lifeline to the rest of the world that's exactly Absolutely. what it is. Vanessa, did you sleep in a room, or were you one of the people who got a tent oh, uh, and slept on yeah, the deck we outside, as some we, people do? <laughs> we were not brave enough to sleep in tents, as <laughs> some people did, or in a chair. We did get a stateroom, and, you know, the staterooms were quite nice. They were tiny uh, and basic, but they were very clean, bunk beds, and showers. Uh, it was great. And then uh, the cafeteria was great food, I mean, a variety and you know, it was nothing to complain about. And then, you know, it's not the entertainment that you would have on a cruise ship, but they did have a movie theater in which they um, would give you information uh, about some of the little cities and building of the Alcan Highway, just very informative information. Nice. So uh, it was wonderful. You know, Vanessa, I'm just, I live right here in Seattle, and it's just uh, three days. It's probably much cheaper than a regular cruise. And as you said, you meet the locals, and you'll go to towns that are not inundated by the thousands of cruisers, but you'll go to towns where you, it's just really the milk run. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, nice. uh, it was great. And if we'd had more time, we probably would have taken it even farther. But mm-hmm. uh, we wanted to uh, explore a little further uh, inland so towards you, Denali. Did you, rent, did you have a, car, a, a rental car at some of the places then? Well, yes. What we did is uh, we got off the ferry in Juneau, and then we flew from Juneau to Anchorage, and then we rented a car okay. for the rest of uh, Alaska, more of the inside area of Alaska. All right. Well, thanks, Vanessa, for your report. Well, thank you, and I'm a big fan. I've used your books on two trips to Europe, and you have never let me down. So well, thank you very much for all that. All right. Well, now you're inspiring me to go to Alaska, so nice. happy travels. <laughs> Absolutely. Please do. Okay. So, Mark, uh, Vanessa was talking about the ferry system. She rode the ferry from the lower 48 to the upper, yep. and uh, you can use that as a springboard to go even beyond, I suppose. Now, you took it from Juneau and went even further north, I understand. I did. I went north to Haynes and Skagway, and I went to Gustavus, uh, which is the town at the lip of Glacier Bay National Park, which is hmm. absolutely phenomenal. Um, you can take it to a little teeny tiny town called Yakutat, which is by some reckoning the most isolated town in America, certainly hmm. the most isolated coastal town in America, hmm. I would have to think. And then if you want, you can take it across the Gulf of Alaska to towns like Cordova. And, Sounds just uh, like an adventure. Yeah, Valdez. I mean, you can can take it, like I said, all the way to the beginning of the Aleutian Islands if you want. Mark Adams writes about what he found along the Alaska Marine Highway in his book, Tip of the Iceberg. We have a link to his website and his earlier visits with us about his hike to Machu Picchu and his search for Atlantis. You'll find it with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. 
So, Mark, your book, uh, Tip of the Iceberg, it's retracing the historic route that Harriman did in 1899. Give us a quick little thumbnail of what he did and why, and why you wanted to redo it um, 120 years later. Well, you know, actually this book started not far from where you are, in Pioneer Square Mm -hmm. uh, in Seattle, where there's a totem pole. And being the the ace reporter I am, I asked the National Park Ranger in his smoky bear hat who was standing there, what is this totem pole for? And he said, you know, in 1899, the original pole was brought here by some businessmen who were inspired by the Harriman Expedition. I said, what is that? He said, oh, you never heard of that? Because that was the railroad tycoon, Edward Harriman, brought together some of America's most important naturalists like John Muir and George Bird Grinnell, took them on a boat off to Alaska for the whole summer, and they came back and, you know, had basically mapped the entire coast of Alaska. (laughs) And I thought to myself, wait a minute, John Muir, the, like, you know, nature druid who founded the Sierra Club, what was he doing on a boat with E.H. Harriman? who's probably, you know, most famous for, for being name-dropped in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid mm. is the guy who's, who's paying for them to be tracked down because he's got so much money. So the more I looked into it, the more I realized that, you know, this was one of the most important expeditions in conservation history. You know, the science they did, the discoveries they made were nice but nothing special. But the things they saw and documented and most importantly brought back to Washington, D.C. and explained to people like Theodore Roosevelt were absolutely crucial in setting aside huge swaths of Alaska that are still preserved to this day as the Tongass National Forest. On their expedition were the founders of, do I understand, the founder of National Geographic and the founder of the Audubon Society plus John Muir? A few of the founders of the National Geographic Society were there. A fellow named Henry Gannett was there. You must have immersed yourself in, in Harriman's journals or whatever. Did he start out as an environmentalist or did it even have an impact on him? Because I can imagine back then you would have just been awestruck by the, the wonder and the grandeur of nature. No, he started out, in fact, uh, wanting to go to Alaska. One, because Alaska had become fashionable because John Muir had first gone up there 20 years earlier, written these beautiful travel dispatches that, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of set the west coast of the U.S. on fire, and companies started sending steamships up to look at the glaciers in the 1880s. So by 1899, when the Harriman Expedition left Seattle, it had become a very fashionable thing for tourists to go up into the Inside Passage, sort of the way it is now. When you think about what Harriman saw and then what you see today the fragility and the preciousness of nature and and the communities that live on it must have been quite impressive. What sort of um, impact did it have on you? What did you see that caused you to be more mindful of uh, conservation and and environmental concerns? The thing that struck me when I first started looking at the Harriman Expedition was that these guys like Muir and George Bird Grinnell had come back and said, you know, look, we think this is like a giant wilderness that is, you know, inexhaustible. But it's not. There are gold mining companies up there. There are, you know, fur seals being hunted to extinction. The salmon in Alaska, which Alaska is still famous for, are in, you know, grave danger of being hunted out because canning companies are up there just killing anything they can get their hands on. In your book, um, you wrote about Shishmaref and this Alaska yeah, village. Yeah, yeah. So what, what I realized was that in 1899, they had had these ecological pending disasters. And in 2016, when I departed for Alaska... The pending ecological disaster was, of course, climate change because Mm. the Arctic is heating up twice as fast as the the lower 48. I ended up in a town called Shishmaref, and the way it worked out, the day I was leaving for Shishmaref, I believe, they voted to become what was called the world's first climate refugees. 
because Shishmaref is sort of a sandy barrier island up near Nome, near the Arctic Circle. And it's eroding. You know, the storms are getting worse every year. The ice pack that protects them from these, you know, mm-hmm. storms coming off the Bering Sea is getting thinner every year. They can't hunt on the ice anymore. And they've basically realized, you know, look, we've got to leave our ancestral island where we've lived for centuries and relocate to the mainland because of climate change. Now, That's another thing issue. related, Mark, to the um, struggles of Shishmaref is the actual potential new business brought about by climate change because, uh, I guess, while you were up there, the first luxury cruise ship through the ice-free Northwest Passage had just yeah. sailed. That's pretty historic that a, not just a, an icebreaker, but a luxury cruise ship sailing over the north end of North America. There was a ship called the Crystal Serenity, and they did. They planned the very first luxury cruise through the, the Northwest Passage, going from Nome up above through the islands of Canada, where a hundred years ago, Roald Amundsen had needed to get through there with a dog sled Mm -hmm. in the summer. Mm -hmm. And they thought they were going to need an icebreaker to help them out just in case. They had no trouble whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, more ships, I think the first commercial ship just went through there. So, you know, the the Northwest Mm -hmm. Passage that so many people died looking for in the Mm -hmm. 1700s and 1800s, is (laughs) on the, the verge of becoming a viable transportation possibility. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Mark Adams. His book is Tip of the Iceberg, a fascinating story about a 3,000-mile journey around wild Alaska, the last great American frontier. When you were on your trip, what are some of the most rewarding sort of moments that you just think, yes, this is worth all the trouble and all the expense to get up here? Well, you know, probably the craziest moment, which in retrospect is usually one of those things that, that seems like a great idea, was when I woke up on an island in the middle of Glacier Bay National Park, and my guide and I were the only people probably within 20 miles at that moment. And I saw the sunrise over the Grand Pacific Glacier, which leads all the way back into Canada, this huge white mass, and the sort of rosy light starts to come down Mm. the sides of the fjord onto the green water, which is shimmering, and there are these, you know, sea otters there poking their heads above the water. And you know, I'm sitting there with my copy of, of John Muir's Travels in Alaska and thinking, wow, what a moment this is. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see two brown bears. Mm. <laughs> and they're looking at me, and I'm looking at them. And then they come a little bit closer, and then they come around, and they're going into our tents. <laughs> and my guide says, I think we need to get the heck out of here now. Uh, get, grab all of our stuff, throw it in the kayak, and we're paddling for our lives. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. What a great trip. And, and Mark, thanks for sharing it with your book. This has been a great conversation with Mark Adams, the author of Tip of the Iceberg. Just to finish off the discussion, when you think about Mm -hmm. Harriman, you must have been traveling sort of parallel with him. What was an experience that that really had a huge impact on Harriman that that also had an impact on you, sort of a parallel experience that you both brought home as as the takeaway for all of this uh, exploration? I mean, the, the thing that really struck me was being in Glacier Bay, which had been literally put on the map by John Muir in 1879. There, have, there were no charts of Glacier Bay up before that because the glacier was, was withdrawing so quickly mm-hmm. at that time. Being on a boat and going past where John Muir and Harriman and the rest of the team mm-hmm. had stopped to visit this little stone cabin that John Muir had built there in 1890 at the foot of what was called Muir Glacier, the most famous glacier in Glacier Bay in 1899. Right after they left, Muir Glacier started to retreat. And in the last few decades, it has retreated really fast. And if you look at pictures from the Harriman Expedition, 
It is this massive 200-foot-high, mile-wide wall of ice mm -hmm. that is threatening to knock the ship over if mm -hmm. too large of a chunk calves off. It, it doesn't even touch the water anymore. It's mm -hmm. way up in the valley. Mm -hmm. It's just this little sliver of ice. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a reminder that these things are huge and they're majestic, but they are not by any means permanent. And that's a poignant souvenir. Mark Adams, yeah. thanks so much and uh, continued best wishes with your writing and uh, happy travels. Thanks for having me. You don't have to go to Alaska to be impressed by the natural world. In fact, evolutionary forces may be at work right now in your own backyard. Hear what biologists are noticing around the world next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Ilva. I live in Stockholm. I have a tongue twister for you. In the Swedish language, we have a sound that sounds like this. And the tongue twister sounds like this. Which means seven seasick sailors are nursed by seven beautiful nurses on the sinking ship of Shanghai. You can see it in the world all around you. We humans are changing the wildlife and plants that share the spaces we inhabit. As an urban ecologist from the Netherlands, Menno Skiltausen has been noticing how such common things as the din of traffic, free-ranging cats and dogs, and especially our city's urban heat islands are actually making crows, pigeons, blackbirds and wrens, and even lizards, moths and spiders, adapt in some remarkable ways to survive in our modern world. In his latest book, Darwin Comes to Town, Professor Skiltausen casts what some are calling a radical new light on the way we should be thinking about evolution. He's here to tell us how it's happening a lot faster than Charles Darwin ever imagined, often right before our eyes. Menno Skiltausen, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you, Rick. This book you've written, it seems the purpose is to open our eyes to the wonders of uh, a term I had never encountered before, HIREC, H-I-R-E-C, standing for Human-Induced Rapid Evolutionary Change. Can you explain this whole concept of HIREC to us? Yeah, it's, it's basically the evolutionary adaptation, so really a genetic change in uh, wild animals and plants that are adapting, evolving to adapt to a, a human-dominated environment, which especially cities, and it turns out that this environment that we're creating and that animals and plants are living in, in in cities is so different from what they're used to in the wild that these changes are happening very quickly and sometimes in a matter of years mm. or, or sometimes decades so that we can actually observe these evolutionary changes taking place, whereas for a long time people have thought that evolution was too slow a process to observe. That's interesting because I was just thinking, I thought it was be over like scores of generations, but I'm thinking in terms of human generations, which would be decades long each, whereas when you think of a moth or a spider, their lifespans are so so tiny. So you could have scores of generations in one or two years, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah that's one of the reasons why many uh, organisms can evolve so fast. This, this short generation time 
which is basically sort of the, the evolutionary clock speed, you could say. It's mm-hmm. that every generation you see the effect of the natural selection that took place in the generation before. So if those generations are short, the evolutionary changes can also succeed each other very quickly. Like insects and many, many weeds, which have multiple generations per year, they can evolve pretty fast. So if my thumb is going to get more use because I have a smartphone and my grandmother didn't have a smartphone and I use my thumb all the time with my smartphone, over 50 generations, I'll get a bigger and more adept thumb. Is that kind of how, <laughs> how evolution works? Is it on the way to getting well, bigger and better? On, no, not necessarily. It's only, well, it's going to get bigger and better under the circumstances, and only if, if you're using your smartphone better will help you survive better than your grandmother or have you make you have more children oh, I see. which which may be may be true but of course you need you need some way to, for this to translate okay then that gene needs to spread in the population and it can only spread if having that particular type of thumb makes you survive or makes you reproduce more successfully okay. than other people so an animal in the jungle that has good peripheral vision is less likely to be captured by its predator and therefore the because of evolution they'll get a better peripheral vision that's the essence of evolution and to go on on that example in a city this may actually not always be the case because a lot of birds for example are hit are die at the moment because they they hit windows glass windows hmm. for which peripheral vision is not so important but rather being able to focus straight ahead and there are some birds which have very good peripheral vision but very poor straight ahead vision and ah. those are the ones that are dying against glass windows so you could even imagine that that vision is something that would evolve differently in cities compared to jungles. Now, the classic example of a species adapting to a changing environment is something I remember reading about back when I was in college. These moths back in England in the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution, Mm. as the pollution made the terrain more covered with soot or whatever, the moths became darker. Is that right? And then when England got over its pollution, those same moths evolved in the other direction to go white again? Yeah, and that's a, a classic textbook case of rapid evolution, even though it's it's involved only a single gene. There was just a single factor on these moth chromosomes that made their wings turn dark, but that single gene spread throughout the species uh-huh. uh, across England, across mainland Europe, as pollution in the 19th century became uh, prevalent. And indeed, as you say, in the 1950s, 1960s, these uh, regulations for cleaner air were introduced and the pollution disappeared. And then the the white moths um, had an advantage again because the trees on which they rest became lighter colored again and they were better camouflaged again on this lighter color in the same way that the dark-winged ones were better camouflaged against the sooty trees during the height of the Industrial Revolution. All over the world, in cities and other other human-altered environments, Animals and plants are evolving all the time. They can evolve back and forth as, as conditions change or mm-hmm. can evolve in a different hmm. direction. It's also not true that evolution will necessarily always continue to work in the same direction. It's, it works one generation at a time. So it can, if the conditions change, it can, can go into a different direction again. That's the nice thing about evolution. It's such a dynamic process. That's kind of the breakthrough of your study is that it's, it's happening faster than we realize and uh, we can actually shape the direction that things are evolving if we do it thoughtfully. Yeah, in theory, that's it is one of the things I say in my book that we could, mm-hmm. we could change the way cities are, are planned. We could, mm-hmm. we could 
generates green green spaces in the city in such a way that you can actually enhance this process of of animals and plants wow. adapting to cities. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Menno Skilthausen. He's a professor of evolutionary biology at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and he's the author of Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. It explores how humans are influencing the process of natural selection right now and around the world with fascinating examples of how our fellow creatures are adapting. We have links to his works with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Menno, in your book, you make it really clear that human beings are not just another species. We are the super species. It's like no other single species has ever been anywhere near so dominant. Yeah, like you say, it's really we, we we tend to be be very depressed about the impact that humans have on the earth at the moment, but in a more objective way, it's also a very exciting time because we're really living in a very historic moment of the history of life on earth. It's never before has a single species been able to dominate the earth's environment so drastically as we are. Now, when I've flown across uh, vast, you know, spaces and looked down at the world from an airplane, the environmentalist in, in me kind of goes, well, thank goodness these urban landscapes are just a little rash breaking out in a few spots here and there. But in your book, you wrote that by 2030, 10% of the land mass will be urbanized and, and much more will be uh, affected by humans if you consider farmland and pasture. I mean, that's remarkable, isn't it, that such a substantial percent of the land on this planet will actually be covered in concrete or fenced by human beings. Yeah, yeah. Cities are are no longer just a small marginal, biologically uninteresting part of the, of the world. If ecosystems and biodiversity want to survive, they're going to have to live in cities because it's going to be a major natural habitat in its own right. I mean, we don't think of it as a natural habitat, but it is a place where humans concentrate food and all kinds of other resources, mm. which could be which could be an opportunity for many animals and plants to to find a new niche in this new environment. You talk about cities having their own climate and their own environment, these urban heat islands and so on. What are some of the things in a city that are causing this evolution? Of course, not every species can live in cities, but the ones that, that do, they often find a lot of food. Humans bring in a lot of food and a lot of opportunity into their cities and there are animals and plants that benefit from this but they need to they need to adapt because the conditions it's really an extreme environment the conditions mm-hmm. in cities are very different from natural environments like you say the the urban heat islands it's the, the heat gets trapped in big cities the the concrete and the steel and the glass they absorb solar radiation and then slowly radiate it out at night so it can be more than 10 degrees centigrade hotter in the city center and to adapt to those higher temperatures is one thing that you see happening in in um, ah. in urban species. There's a fun example in your book about mosquitoes. And if I'm a mosquito, you know, and my grandma was living on bird blood, I find myself in London, and it's warmer down in the underground and in the in the in the metro. Mm-hmm. And I realize, oh, it's just full of human beings walking banquets. If you like to suck on human blood. And an actual new species of mosquito would would inhabit the London Underground. Yeah, and that's exactly what's happened. Oh. Is the London Underground mosquito, Culex molestus, which has evolved uh, not only in the London Underground but in in cellars and subway tubes and basements all over the world, and it has branched off. It has descended from 
and probably quite recently in the last few hundred years and maybe a few thousand years, but at least huh. during the time that people have been building these structures, it has descended from an ancestral species of mosquito that lived above ground and that was feeding on birds. And this underground mosquito that feeds on humans is, is very different, not only in the fact that it feeds on human blood, but also in the way it mates and the way it its life cycle is constructed, as you say, underground in subways. It's warm the year round. There's food the year round. So that those underground mosquitoes have evolved into a separate species thanks to us. What's another example of a of a creature that has adapted to a city? Well, one of my favorite examples is because it's one of the most striking ones is uh, the European blackbird. Uh -huh. which is not related to the American blackbird. It's actually closely related to the American robin. So the, the European blackbird was one of the first birds to colonize cities already very early in the 19th century. It started colonizing Rome and some cities in Germany, mm. even though it was normally a far, very shy uh, forest bird. Mm. It set up camp in the cities and it has been doing that ever since. So now you find them in cities all over Europe and even in Asia and in islands on, on the Atlantic. And because they have started colonizing cities so early on, this is a process that's been going on for more than 200 years, they have evolved in all kinds of ways, probably in many different places of their chromosomes. There are differences now. For example, they have shorter beaks, probably mm. because they feed on human food. They don't have to probe into the deep into the grass to get worms. Mm -hmm. They sing at a higher pitch because of the, the traffic noise that they have to rise above. And for the same reason, they sing very early in the morning, in, in the middle of the night, whereas a forest blackbird would never do that. They don't migrate anymore because there's food available the year round. They are less stressed. And all these differences are genetic. We have found genes that are responsible for all those differences. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Menno Skilthausen. His book is Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. And Menno, when I was reading your book, you're a biologist. A biologist, you'd think, would, would not really like urban blight, but you wrote that uh, what you enjoy about the urban situation is not the well-organized part, but the grimy, organic fabric of the city, revealed in forgotten corners where the threadbare carpet of culture gives way, the city's underbelly where the artificial and the natural meet and engage in ecological relations. What do you mean by ecological relations? It just sounds, sounds exciting. Like I said, the city provides a lot of food and opportunities for, for wildlife. And at the same time, that wildlife itself comes from all over the world. For example, when you're, you're walking on, on the streets in the city, you might see some city pigeons, which are originally from southern Europe. You might see some grove snails, which are originally from northern Europe. You might see species from Asia. You might see species from different parts of, of North America. These these are all brought in by things like garden centers and the pet trade and simply accidentally introduced. You even write how a fungus spreads to the bathrooms around the world by the toiletry kits of tourists? Yeah, yeah, or obesidium. Those are those, those orange moles that you can sometimes find in bathrooms. That's a single species that lives all over the world now. Brought by travelers with their toiletry kits. Yeah, we're always, we're often, people try to persuade me and, and other people to, to attach some sort of value to right. what's happening. And I, I just, to me, whether, you know, it's an, an exotic species or an, an, a native species, to me, doesn't really matter too much. Right. It's, if it's doing its ecological job, then that's, that's good enough for me. And when you see a bird nest made out of cigarette butts or plastic strips, what do you think? Mm. 
I think those are the, the successful birds. Those are the ones that have been able to adapt to local conditions where maybe there are no, no twigs available, but there are cigarette buds which actually have insecticide which help make their nests be much more healthy because it kills the mites and the fleas. Or a bird that has just chosen some, some plastic instead of twigs. To us it seems very sad and unnatural, but, but as long as those birds can raise their young in those artificial nests, to them it's fine, it's success. So what is your summation here? You've gained an understanding of the power of evolution and the relentless adaptability of the living world. So what? Well, I think it's, it's very important for us to be aware of this because it is such a crucial natural process that we often think is something that, that's happening far away over long periods of time. We don't see evolution as something that you can observe in your backyard, but you can. And it's, it, it goes fast and it happens everywhere and all the time. And we can actually, as non-biologists, even participate in studying this process. There are such wonderful citizen science projects nowadays where you can upload pictures and scientists can use those images to see how species are evolving in different cities all over the world. So that's really my, my vision for the future of, of, of having ordinary people who are doing citizen science simply because they enjoy it, really contributing to scientific research. So are you saying that we could be considering that our urban spaces are, are also homes for animals and uh, designing our future cities with that in mind? Would that, is that actually something you could envision? Yeah, there are different ways in which we could design our cities to to help biodiversity and to help it evolve. For example, that's often in cities there's a tendency to create corridors between different parks, and mm -hmm. this may be good for large animals, but for small animals actually it might be better to keep them isolated because we, we see that in cities there's a lot of sort of local adaptation going on, mm -hmm. that the animals in parks are adapting to the local conditions of, of that mm -hmm. specific park, and if you connect those parks then you may lose that process of, of local adaptation. That's one of the advices I give. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Menno Skilthausen. His book is Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. Menno, when I think about how humankind intersects with nature and, and the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, I'm thinking climate change, I'm thinking invasive species, I'm, I'm thinking new diseases born by insects that are showing up where they're not supposed to show up. Uh, there's a lot of negative challenges that come with, you know, the, this super species on the planet. With your teaching, I suppose some people could say, well, you're not blowing any whistle that we have any responsibility on this planet. You're just saying, this is an exciting ride. Let's know where it's going and, uh, and ride it smartly. How do you answer that? Yeah, I'm, I am saying that, but at the same time, I'm not saying that, that all biodiversity can survive in cities and that everything can adapt. The examples I'm giving in my book are success stories of animals and plants that have been able to survive in cities. But in addition, of course, there are many species which simply go extinct because they cannot, they cannot adapt. And for those species, we still need these pristine areas. So, for example, I'm, I'm also... Another sort of citizen science project that I'm doing is called taxon expeditions and we take non-biologists into the jungle and discover new species with them and those are species which you can only really find in those pristine forests and in places where the human influence is minimal and those species will not be able to survive in cities so I think we at the same time we're still going to need a protected network of areas where the human influence is still very minimal. Menno Skilthausen, author of 
Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. Thank you so much for your work and, and sharing it so eloquently in your book. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Casmore Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York and WABE Atlanta for studio support this week. Mendel tells us what he notices around Amsterdam in a program extra to today's show. You can hear it from our website at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.